the level of positive change is so astonishing that you really have to look at it. And I think Christians need to say, are the Saudis going to be a net positive to America, to the region, to Israel, against Iran? Saudi Arabia, often called the Forbidden Kingdom of Islam. A place where there are no Christian churches. What is it like inside? From the perspective of a Jewish background, Israeli evangelical. We're going to answer that question in this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller. Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we're talking with Joel Rosenberg from Jerusalem about what it's like inside the Forbidden Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be with you, Carl. Thank you. This is a fascinating topic, and I'm glad we're tackling So, Joel, this is a fascinating question. Recently, I read in All Arab and All Israel News that uh, a group of Saudi leaders had met with some Israeli and U.S. leaders and indicated their readiness to normalize relations with Israel and the U.S. What does that mean and what's driving all that? Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, All Israel News and All Arab News, uh, we broke that story in January of a delegation. It wasn't Israelis, but it was a Jewish organization in the United States uh, of oh. former uh, high-level American diplomats, national security officials, and uh, military officials who were invited in to meet with uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a.k.a. MBS. He's widely known by his initials. He's the heir to the throne. And as his father is ailing, he's has more and more authority, uh, even though he's not yet the king. Uh, they met with Everybody at the top. I mean, so uh, in the article, we can put it in the, a link in the show notes. Perhaps you can see all the names. Uh, we actually did two stories. On it. I did two stories. But the bottom line was, and I, what I think is interesting is that while it wasn't Israelis, it was Jewish Americans. And the Saudi leadership's message to them was a huge story, which was we are ready to normalize with Israel, but we need help normalizing with President Biden. That the, that the Biden administration relationship with Saudi Arabia has gotten so toxic and so broken wow. that the Saudis are uncomfortable about moving forward with making peace with Israel because that will bring all kinds of risks from Iran and from other yeah. you know, radical and apocalyptic Islamist organizations and countries and so forth. So they really need their relationship with Washington, with America to be strong on a solid alliance footing before they're willing to take this risk. That's a big movement. It, it, it's a significant development. And that comes, you know, this, this was not, you know, people off the record. This was the head of the delegation going on the record with me. And right. uh, so that is interesting. And it raises the larger question, what in the world is going on inside of Saudi Arabia? There's so little media coverage. Right in the world and certainly in the United States of what's going on there that I think most Americans aren't sure they've heard a lot of bad things yeah, and there have been bad things in the past, but they're not hearing much of the good things that are happening. So, yeah. We're going to definitely talk about that because that's really what's inside the forbidden kingdom. But you identified Iran as one of the drivers for this openness to normalize relationship with Israel. Uh, what other factors are kind of pushing them geopolitically, at least in this direction? Well, ultimately, I believe this is uh, they're being driven by the prayers of millions of people that are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm not sure if they see it quite that way yet, 
Um, but I believe that what we're seeing is the hand of God yeah. changing the hearts of leaders and nations all throughout the Arab and Muslim world. Now, from their felt need perspective, they yes, they uh, Mohammed bin Salman told me in person on the record, as I write about in Enemies and Allies, that book, he said that he considers the supreme leader of Iran the new Hitler. Wow. You know, that's the way Israelis talk. It's not been the way yeah. Muslims talk. The Iranians are Muslims. They're a different brand, a different denomination, as it were, a different faction of Islam than the Sunni Saudis. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Iranians are, Shia. The are, are Shia Muslims, which is right. only about 20% of all Islam, but the vast majority, 80% or so, are Sunnis. The Saudis yeah. are Sunnis. But all that to say, that's a little bit too much detail. The point is, just like Israel is worried that Iran is going to break out and go build nuclear weapons and put them on missiles capable of wiping us off the planet, like they say they will, the Saudis mm. feel the same way. And wow. other Arab countries in the region do. And they want to build an alliance first with the United States, but then also with Israel to protect themselves. But then they also want an economic alliance. They, mm. they really see Israel not as an impoverished, backward country, which you know we were 75 years ago. They see Israel as a high tech, you know, I would say progressive and I mean real progress of making, you know, building a a country out of nothing and under tremendous odds against us and building one of the strongest, uh, you know, economies in the in the region, a high tech superpower, a military regional superpower. Uh, All that is very attractive to people who don't see Israel as the enemy, but now see Israel as the ally. But what's also interesting is the Saudis want to throw their country open to trade tourism, technology, foreign direct investment. And part of the tourism side means they want Christians to come visit. Now, historically, as you said, they they saw themselves, they branded themselves the Forbidden Kingdom. Nobody was allowed to go there unless you were, you know, on an oil contract or, you know, some right. specific reason. They didn't want people to come. They're the epicenter of Islam, Mecca and Medina, mm-hmm. where, where the prophet of Muhammad you know, wrote the Quran and, and, um, and preached and converted people to Islam. So they didn't want Christians and Jews. Now they do. And uh, I think it's very interesting, especially because there's actually a biblical history to the peninsula of Arabia. Now it's ca- mostly called Saudi Arabia that most Christians themselves don't even realize. Wow. Well, we want to talk about that. But, you know, a few months ago, uh, you and I and many others uh, w- were on a delegation to the Gulf region to meet with some of the emirates there, some of the Kingdom of Bahrain, some of the leadership there. How are those Abraham Accord agreements uh, really setting up the stage for what Saudi Arabia is engaged in right now? Well, the Saudi people are able to have a conversation now, first, because MBS is just opening up the whole concept of, of, you know, you can have a conversation now. You're you're a woman, you can drive. You're a woman, you can go to a restaurant. You don't have to have your father or your brother with you. You can get a passport and leave the country. You can start a business. You can join the military as a woman. This never, never was possible. So there's a whole cultural conversation and an economic conversation. MBS's Vision 2030, where he set a clock, you know, he sort of wound up a clock, set it for 2030 and said, we've got to change Dramatically, we have to transform our economy from an only oil-based economy to economy based on technology and trade and foreign direct investment sure. and progress, innovation, entrepreneurship. That's not been the Saudi way. Right. So all of that is creating a conversation. I'm not saying 
Let me be clear. I'm not saying people have political freedom to just say whatever they want. Right. MBS is specifically not opening up political freedom. There's not going to be democracy right. in Saudi Arabia, you know, in, in the foreseeable future. Uh, it's an absolute monarchy. But within that monarchy, he says, I want to create a, a world where, you know, monarchies are not bad. He's saying, you know, uh, even even in the Bible, there were monarchies. King David was a monarch, right? Solomon mm-hmm. was a monarch. And they had thriving, peaceful countries. We want to be a thriving modern, peaceful countries. So the fact that the neighbors, the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Bahrain, and others uh, now in Africa, uh, Sudan and Morocco, now that they have made peace with Israel, the Saudi people are able to talk about it Hmm. on social media, at at cafes, around the dinner table. Is that good? Is it bad? Let them have the conversation is sort of what the Saudi leadership is saying. Let's discuss it. Should we? Shouldn't we? Is it good? Is it bad? And, uh, you know, I was just in uh, the UAE and Bahrain again just uh, a few weeks ago before we record this, and um, there's so much progress. 600,000 Israelis, 600,000 Israelis have visited the United Arab Emirates just since they opened wow. up direct flights. And there are now, wait for it, 244 direct flights back and forth every week between <laughs> the UAE and Israel, 244. And they're not doing that because they have to. They're doing it because they need enough planes to take care of the traffic. So that is causing people in Saudi Arabia to go, maybe that's good. Not everybody thinks that, but some people, especially young people are like, that's kind of cool. And what could Israel offer us? Wow. That is remarkable. And, you know, on a recent podcast, we we talked about Iran and the difference between the people and the, the leadership. This is a leadership that's moving in the right direction. You know, sometimes I'm sure there are pockets and places within the Gulf states and, and within Saudi Arabia, certainly, where that's not, a, you know, a super positive idea about going to Israel or something like that. But you right. see this as, as a beginning, as a thawing, as an opening, don't you? I do. And I think as evangelicals, we really have to look at what's going on. Like, like we have to start with the premise, yes, Saudi Arabia has a very dark history, historically, and even in modern times, right? It was only... On 9-11, just 22 years ago, as we record this, that 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi nationals, okay? Right. 15 out of the 19. And, of course, the mastermind of the whole devious, wicked, evil plot was himself Saudi, Osama bin Laden. So that's the way most Americans and most Christians worldwide think of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It's the birthplace and the epicenter of Islam, and it's been a fount of radical Islamism for as long as we can all remember. So not everybody is up to speed with the sweeping change that Mohammed bin Salman is bringing. Or they've heard of it, but then they're like, didn't he just kill some Saudi dissident? Yeah. Well, there's no proof that he did, but many people think that. Mm-hmm. President Biden thinks that. Mm-hmm. So that – murder was so heinous, so gruesome that it caused people to go, well, if he did it or people around him did it, like, how can that be good? Yeah. It, well, that wasn't good. And the question is, were people who did that thinking that the Saudi Arabia they knew that they grew up in, that they were trained in, that is the Saudi Arabia that they, you know, that kills their enemy, you know, hand for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and you hate us, we'll take you out. Like, that's a very Middle Eastern way. Yeah, right. think no, of right. think of uh, the second chapter. I think it's second chapter of um, the book of Daniel, 
right? What happens? Nebuchadnezzar says to his soothsayers, his you know seers and prophets, as it were, "Look, I want you to tell me what my vision, what my dream was, and if you don't, I will chop you up into little pieces." Exactly. Well, that's exactly what happened to this Saudi yeah. uh, journalist dissident. Yeah. He was chopped up in little pieces, and like that's horrifying. I'm not defending it. Do not hear me defending it. What I'm saying is that's the Middle Eastern way, mm-hmm. and it goes back to the Bible times. Mm-hmm. It was evil then. It's evil, it's now. evil now. But the question is, did MBS really do it? And again, just to be totally honest, and I, you go read my book, Enemies and Allies. I lay out all the data on both sides, and I'm telling you, there isn't any proof. That doesn't mean he didn't do it. Or know about it, but there's no proof of that. So then the question is, look at what he's doing. He's he's bringing so much change. Why would he do it? But even yeah. set Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi aside, I'm a fiction writer. You know this. And, and our audience, most people know this. And a darn I, good one at that. Joel. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> but it, if MBS didn't exist as a force for positive change, the type of change that Saudi Arabia has craved, needed desperately for centuries – if MBS didn't exist, I would have to invent him. <laughs> so I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying that I know everything about him. What I'm saying is the level of positive change is so astonishing that you really have to look at it. And I think Christians need to say, OK, OK, are the Saudis going to be a net positive to America, to the region, to Israel, against Iran? And what about these churches? There are no churches. We brought this up with MBS. 1.4 million foreign workers who are Christians yeah. or their families live in your country, Mr. Crown Prince. Why are there no churches? Like, could, Couldn't you have part of your reforms be, let's go build some churches? And so that's a yeah. conversation we need to have. But one more thing, and I know we got to take a break, but just yeah. as, when we come back, we have to talk about the biblical history okay. of Arabia. Because I don't think people realize that the Apostle Paul spent three years – yeah. In Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of biblical stories and prophecies about Arabia that most people just haven't thought about. It just doesn't get taught, but it is very, very interesting. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Joel. We got to take a break. And when we get back, you've been there. And I want our listeners to know what is it like to actually sit in the room in the palace with the leader of Saudi Arabia? We'll talk about that when we get back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse for the day today is found in Psalm 29, 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And our prayer requests today are to one, pray for Israel and her neighbors that the peace of God 
will reign among them. And second, to pray for Saudi Arabia, that the people and leaders there will come to know Jesus and that they're divinely inspired to make the right decisions. Joel, we're back. And, uh, you know, we left the last section talking about the biblical history and the biblical implications for the Saudi nation, the Arabian Peninsula, and all of the nations there, as well as we really want to give people an inside look as what is it like inside the palace of MBS in Saudi Arabia. But first, take us to the scripture and, and talk to us about what the Bible says about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Well, you know, if you, if you just start with the book of Acts and what you find is the moment Saul, the rabbi Saul, who's hated Jewish followers of Jesus, wanted to crush, arrest, punish and kill every Jewish follower of Jesus that he could find in the first century. The moment he comes to faith miraculously on the road to Damascus and then, you know, sort of is baptized in Damascus and, you know, gets a little bit of you know, brotherly fellowship from Ananias and you know, starts thinking, oh my gosh, and his, you know, his blindness is healed. And so he got his spiritual blindness is healed. His physical blindness is healed. And what does he do? Does he go right to Jerusalem? He does not. He goes to Arabia for three years. That's interesting, right? Because we don't think of Arabia as even being in the Bible. And yet the apostle Paul went there. Why did he go there? That's right. Well, the Bible doesn't precisely say, but I think we can draw a couple of conclusions. First, I believe that he needed to get away. I believe that the Holy Spirit directed him to go. You know, basically Saul became Paul and, you know, because Christ just decided sovereignly, you're my man. You're going to be my spokesman. You're going to be my witness. But I got to do a lot of changing inside of you. So every thought that Paul had was wrong. <laughs> he was an incredible student of the scriptures, been trained by Gamaliel, one of the, the masters of uh, rabbinic thinking. But all of it was wrong. So, or most of it was wrong. And so God had to take Paul out of commission, out of the cities, out of the intensity and get him away into the yeah. desert yeah. where God could reload the software to take <laughs> Paul through every passage of scripture that he had ever learned and reteach it to him. So he understood, oh my gosh, like, you know, it, it, some of it's the road to Emmaus discussion, yeah. right? The end of Luke, we see Jesus walking and he and he's explaining to his own disciples who don't recognize him yeah. all the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to him. They didn't get it then and they'd been with him for all that time. But Paul didn't get that at all. So I believe the main reason was to get Paul away from crowds, away mm -hmm. from people who wanted to hate him, people who wanted to love him. Get him away into the desert. And in some ways, this is what God did with, with Moses too, right? Moses was raised in a palace, but he didn't understand God's plan and purpose for him or for his people or for Egypt. And God had to take him out to the desert. Now, his re-education in the desert lasted, you know, 40 years, yeah. not three. So by that standard, Paul, you know, was doing better. On the other hand, the difference, of course, among other things is Paul had the Holy Spirit yeah. and, you know, Moses didn't have an indwelt Holy Spirit at that mm. time. So I think that's the main set of reasons. I, I think it's also possible, one other thing, that God specifically took Paul to Mount Sinai, which is known as the mountain of Horeb. Now, that's an interesting thing. And again, I can't prove it. But Paul describes in Galatians that basically what we call Mount Sinai 
is the mountain of Horeb, mm-hmm. which was in Arabia. That's he specifically mm-hmm. says that. Now that leads a whole other conversation we don't have time for now. Did the Sinai Desert was that included in ancient Arabia? Was that considered yes. it, or, or was the mountain someplace else? I, I don't want to get into that now, but there is an interesting case that the actual Mount Sinai is on the Arabian Peninsula and not in Sinai. But that seems to go against, you know, the Bible calling it Mount Sinai. So I don't want to litigate that right now. What I'm saying is, well, Paul says for sure that Horeb is in Arabia. So wherever the mountain was, it was in Arabia. That's what the Bible says. So that means that it's very possible, and I would say likely, that God didn't just take Paul to the desert to re-educate him. He took him to the place where the law was handed down from Moses. And Paul was going to be like a new Moses yeah. for the church and for those who would enter the church through the gospel. But he really had to be re-educated. One other, and I won't get into all of it unless you want to, but one of the most fascinating stories where Arabia comes into the Bible, of course, you have to go back to the Old Testament. This is where the Queen of Sheba comes and meets with the King of Israel. Now, who was the Queen of Sheba? Well, the Ethiopians, of course, say she was an Ethiopian, and they really claim her. And it's possible, but there's an awful lot of archaeological and historical evidence that Sheba was really Southern Arabia. Interesting. And so she was an Arabian monarch hmm. Hmm. who heard so much about what was happening, all the peace and prosperity and wisdom and blessing that was coming out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. She's like, that I have to see. And so she jumped on a camel with her whole limousine or, you know, motorcade full of or camelcade, I guess. Secret service and, agents. And headed to Jerusalem. And she sits down. She gets an audience, one monarch to another. And she becomes fascinated with the Israeli King Solomon. And she wants to learn his wisdom. And yeah. that too, you know, we actually brought up that story, that biblical story with Mohammed bin Salman. You not did. on the first delegation, but the second. It wasn't me. It was the wife of... Pastor Skip Heitzig, her, her okay. name is Lenya, yeah. and I was so encouraged and to watch that conversation. Here's a wife of a, an American pastor talking to the future king of Saudi Arabia in the palace, and maybe we can even include a photo of this yeah, moment in the show uh, notes. In, yeah. in the show notes, and she says, "You know, your royal highness, I just want to share a biblical story about an Arabian monarch, a woman, as it happens." who made peace with an Israeli king and was intrigued by the wisdom, the prosperity, the peace that could be had together if they worked together. It was such a fascinating thing. I described the whole story in my book, Enemies and Allies, but just as, and he was fascinated with the story. And the next day, Carl, our whole delegation was being briefed at a, at an interesting um, historical Saudi site, uh, the home of, of the first king of the current, you know, um, Saud family, Saudi state yeah, yeah. kingdom uh, from about a, roughly 100 years ago. But anyway, they brought me at, at MBS's insistence, like a framed, I don't know if it's a lithograph, I'm not sure exactly the, the technology, but basically a painting or, or, or an image of this moment where <laughs> the queen of Sheba, Sheba. is meeting with the king of Israel. And I'm like, to hear an evangelical woman share that story yeah. to a Saudi monarch or near, would-be monarch, and then have the monarch return the favor, in a sense, by giving 
Uh, we'll, 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 I'll send you the photo. You can put that in the notes too. It's hanging Amazing. on our wall, right? Yeah, it's on the wall over there. Uh, there it is. <laughs> I don't know if we can do it. I don't. You won't be able to see it. But over that chair. The first time we've ever had a visual tour of your apartment there. <laughs> Inside the Forbidden Kingdom. Uh, yeah. So, no, it was so interesting. And I just thought, yeah. he's not rejecting the analogy yeah. of an Arab leader making peace with an Israeli leader. Yeah. He's embracing it and he's giving us this gift. Wow. As part of, just amazing. Astonishing. Amazing. Astonishing. Well, Joel, you know, we've, we, we talked about um, this, this visit, this delegation visit, and the two that you've had to Saudi Arabia and, and what it's been like. But tell us a little bit more of what it is like inside the kingdom. I mean, honestly, again, I hope our listeners understand that for a Jewish background, evangelical Israeli citizen to enter the palace. That's quite a sentence. Uh, that's quite a <laughs> sentence. Absolutely. We have to hear from you what it was like to be there, to have that sense of what what God could do through some meeting like that. Just take us there for a little bit, will you? I'm happy to. Let me stitch together a, a series of anecdotes that don't necessarily connect, but I'll start with my coffee mug. Let's see. That's a Starbucks mug Okay. Uh, from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So so first thing you have to know is they have Starbucks there. They don't even have them in here in Israel, but that's because right. we're very proud of our coffee and people didn't want Starbucks. <laughs> but Skip Heitzig, the pastor, you know, whose wife is Lenya, we just talked about, Skip loves coffee and he loves Starbucks and he also loves collecting the mugs. So at one point we were having all these meetings, but we had a little bit of downtime and Skip said to the chief of protocol, because we had, I mean, they were treating us like heads of state. It was yeah. really like a state delegation I don't know, 11 or 12 car motorcade. Uh, I mean, wow. just crazy. He said, you know, is there a place, to, do you have a Starbucks here? Is there a way to get a nice cup of coffee? It'd be kind of fun to go and get a mug and whatever. So the guy said, let me check. I would check. He, he flips open his phone. He calls the head of Starbucks. Starbucks. <laughs> the, the president of the company. Like that's what happens when you work for a king. You're like, I'm yes. not just checking with some clerk. I'm going to the top <laughs> of the company. The guy said, well, here's the best one. So, so this motorcade goes screaming through the streets of Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. And we get there and the security moves in like we're the president of the United States or something like wow. like no, people didn't have to leave. But there was security all around us. Anyway, we had a lovely time there and we got some mugs. So th so there you go. There's there's mine. <laughs> but what was also interesting was uh, my son, Jacob, you know, Jacob, sure? uh, you know, and for those who are listening, we have four sons, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah and Noah. And Jonah served in the Israeli military. But here's Jacob now with me on both of these delegations to Saudi Arabia. And he's finished with his coffee and he doesn't want to buy a mug. So the security lets him kind of wander outside just to get a little flavor of the, of the neighborhood that we're in. Well, when it's time to go, we're like, where's Jacob? And somebody says, he went outside and the security's with him. Okay. So we go outside and we look around the corner and he's just staring. But we can't see what he's staring at. So we walk up to him. I said, Jacob, what, what's going on? He goes, look at that. It was an IHOP, an international <laughs> house of pancakes. Now, the chief of protocol then says to Jacob, why are you so interested in IHOP? Do you not have IHOP in America? He goes, no, no, we have IHOPs. We don't have Maseratis, Rolls Royces, and <laughs> parked out front. Like, this is, this is like the cheapest food. You know, I, I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle the IHOP existence. I'm just saying, and he was saying, this is not like something where somebody who, if you have a Lamborghini, you're probably not going to IHOP. To IHOP, for except breakfast. Um, so anyway, th so there's a few things. But here again, here's another Jacob moment. We're driving down this highway in this 
screaming motorcade. And he goes, that was five guys. I'm like, five guys? Like, like so <laughs> The burger we get, place? We, yes, yes, exactly. So he, he, he asked the chief of protocol when we get to the next stop, hey, listen, when we have a moment, could we go back and go go to five guys? So, so sure enough, they find a gap in the schedule. They take wow. it now. I'm trying to tell you a couple things. First, we were not having the normal visit, okay? Yeah. We yeah. had a motorcade. We had the royal protocol. We it, we were meeting with the crown prince and all the top officials. It wasn't normal. So I, I yeah. want to be clear about that. That itself was extraordinary. We were told by the Saudi foreign minister, Adel al-Jubair, he said to me, Joel, do you realize that in the 300 years that the Saud family, that the, the word Saud, you know, Arabia is the location, but Saudi Arabia, I mean, it's the Arabia owned by the Saud family. Mm. That's where that term comes from, the, the name. The Saud family has controlled this swath of the peninsula for about 300 years. And do you realize you're the first group of Christian leaders in the entire 300 years to be invited into the palace? Wow. Not the Pope. Wow. Not Billy Graham. So I was like, no, I, I did not know that. And we confirmed that with the crown prince. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't normal. And yet so that's the first point. The second point is it was it was supernatural. God yes. had opened a door so that we could have a series of conversations, including explaining what is an evangelical and what do we believe to the very highest people in a kingdom that's the epicenter of Islam. But also we got to do some fun things. And what I'm saying is they're trying to import some American things. Again, this was the Forbidden Kingdom. Now they have five guys. And by the way, the Oreo milkshakes were, you know, I I shouldn't say to die for. That might be the wrong. (laughs) Wrong, wrong uh, wrong implication. But the burgers, it wasn't bacon. I get that. It's not halal. It's not kosher. I mean, it was not like a cheap ripoff. This was five guys. Wow. Uh, I didn't know why they didn't call it the five kings or five. Like there's no guy like like five emirs, five sheikhs. I would have called it five sheikhs, and I would have had it. Uh, you know, that's but, the I mean, competitor. Uh, that's the sheikh, competitor. I would have I would have had sheikh and baked chicken. But anyway, that's just me. You, I'm not really you, not running. You out. could have the cookies and cream sheikh. Uh, yeah, exactly, instead. exactly. But the other thing that was interesting to us, so so we got those little tastes, literally, of Americana, the Starbucks and the Five Guys. But the other thing was interesting was in our second meeting. We, we built some trust. We had this relationship. We were now not in Riyadh. We weren't in the palace in the capital, the main palace. We were now in the summer palace in a city called Jeddah, which is on mm-hmm. the western shore of Saudi Arabia, right along the Red Sea. Okay, mm-hmm. So that was a totally different experience and made it very interesting to, for a total different experience. But we have this two-hour meeting with MBS. We go into all these issues, including religious freedom. For Christians and others. And then he says, I'm curious, what do you think of my new province that I'm building, Neom? Because this oh. is like the crown jewel of his t- Vision 2030 plan, right? He's going to build this sort of province and city of the future that's going to be very high tech and very non-Saudi. Like women can wear bathing suits and, you know, and they can be served, people can be served alcohol and there's going to be resorts and it's, it's quite dramatic what he's planning. He wants it to be mm. a a tourism mecca, as it were. If that's, I'm not sure that's the right way to put it either. But he says, well, what did you think of it? I said, well, Your Royal Highness, I mean, w- what we've read sounds very interesting. I mean, I don't know if I have any particular comments beyond that. Um, you know, we're, we're intrigued. He goes, well, didn't you see it? I said, um, no. And he, <laughs> this is a moment of tension. He, he turns to Princess Rima, who's the ambassador of Saudi Arabia to Washington, to his brother, 
Khalid bin Salman, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, who's now the, the, the vice defense minister, the number two, and to Adel al-Jubair, the foreign minister, and to Sheikh Mohammed al-Issa, who's the head of the Muslim World League, the largest Muslim uh, religious organization in the world. And he looks at them and he goes, you didn't send them to Neom? And they're all like, mm, well, mm. so he goes, clear your schedule. Oh, it was his schedule that he gave us anyway, wherever you want us to go. right? But he, he says, I'm going to put you on my private plane and I'm going to send you this afternoon wow. to Neom. Wow. And I just want to say this because it wasn't normal. It was extraordinary and supernatural, the doors that were opening. Mm. But it also gave us a window. Like, like So we got up there, and, and there's not much built up there yet. There is an airport, mm-hmm. um, and it, just beautiful stretches of mountain, sand, and the Red Sea. Okay, Wow. And it's just virgin land. Wow. And, you know, I'd already read all this about what it's going to be. And, it, you know, you're going to see hotels. You're going to see – you know, spas and, you know, you're going to see golf courses and you're going to see, you know, all these like amazing places, plus these cities of the future and so forth, if they ever get it done. But, but there's nothing there right now. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. I remember thinking, and I said to Jacob and to, and to my wife, Lynn, who was on that second trip with us, I said, imagine if you could have stood on the shores of the United Arab Emirates 60 or 70 years ago and Dubai, the sort of with the biggest, you know, tower in, in, in the world, you know, and all these dramatic things that have become the commercial capital of the UAE, but none of it was there. It was just yeah. sand and fishermen and nothing else, mm-hmm. pearl divers. And if you were walking with the founder of the United Arab Emirates along the sand, along the shore, and he said, Sheikh, you know, Sheikh Zayed was his name, and, and Sheikh Zayed said to me, this is going to be the city of the future. <laughs> I, I would be like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> if you like, say so. I wouldn't have had the trust that that vision could become the most dynamic city in the entire Middle East, which is really quite interesting and another conversation for another time. But so standing here, I thought, well, what if you could actually invest in or become part of uh, or pray for not only that this neon would become even a tenth of what the vision is, but what if churches could be here too? What if this could be the first place in Saudi Arabia that was like, this is different this is a model. This is like the model house yeah. in the development that they're going to build, right? Yeah. Of what the whole country is going to become. But we want to test some things up here first. What if? What if? And I thought to myself, I want to be a part of that somehow, prayerfully for sure. Yeah. But maybe in other ways too. So yeah. those are just a few. I mean, I could go on. I, I'm wow. willing to, but I don't want to take up well, the whole podcast. No, it's just I'm so telling you, Joel, we are so grateful that, first of all, that God has, has given you opportunities in favor that are remarkable. As you said, uh, the first evangelical delegation, the first evangelical leader uh, yourself in 300 years of Saud family rule in that country. And in so many other ways, divinely opened doors to have conversations around the Bible, around the gospel, around religious freedom, all of these things. We're just so grateful you were able to share those stories with us. And and again, for our listeners to realize that it's not that you are a powerful person. It's not that you are in some way, shape or form a you know, a, a potent, you know, business leader or a, or a political leader. You are a humble servant. And well, I'm, a, I'm also a failure in a number of areas. You've been really clear about that from time to time. I just want people to understand that this isn't because you have some massive fortune that they want to get something from you, right. but that God has opened up this door 
And he's created an opportunity for you to be a faithful uh, minister of, of the good news there. But I think that leads us to what I, what I would love to be our final question here for you okay. to, to address. And that is, in this context that we've talked about, what's the importance of praying for Israel, for peace now, like never before? We've heard a lot. What would you say to that? I think that the biblical command in Psalm 122, particularly verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's true, but it also has become very cliched for many people. And and, and they they hear it. It sounds like a bumper sticker, you know, hmm. like, you hmm. know, have a nice smile, have a nice day. Like, it, it, And when from all of our formative lives, right, Carl, you and I grew up, we're almost the same age, roughly, and we have not seen peace spread across the Middle East. Middle East has been synonymous with war, terrorism, genocide, persecution of Christians, persecution of Jews, sadness, trauma. Like you just go on and on with the bad news. Yes, the Egyptians made peace with Israel in 1979, but that was government to government. And that was good. It stopped Egyptian wars with Israel, but it didn't stop war in the region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Jordanians made peace with Israel in 1994. Good. Jordan wasn't fighting with Israel or vice versa, but that didn't create sweeping peace throughout the region. So Christians become either cynical or just lackadaisical or just think, yeah, prayer is not really, you know, I mean, yeah, we should pray for that. But I mean, let's let's be honest. There's never going to be peace in the Middle East Mm -hmm. until the Messiah comes. And that is an understandable thought. It's just wrong, it turns out. Yeah. And God, as I've said in you know be, you know on many podcasts before, but let's just say it again. That my pastor from the country of India, who used to who discipled Lynn and me and, and married us, uh, we met him at Syracuse University as undergraduates. He used to say, "Joel, lean, we serve a prayer, hearing and a prayer answering God, a wonder working God." Mm-hmm. Now. Admittedly, we needed English-to-English translation often to understand what Dr. Koshi was saying to us. But in that case, Joel and Lynn, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. He taught us to believe that we were praying too small, that we needed to pray audacious prayers, crazy prayers. Not for ourselves, not like, Lord, I want a Lamborghini. No, I don't need a Lamborghini. How is that going to be a witness for anybody? Lord, could you open up doors that I could go talk to world leaders about Jesus? A little crazy, but it's happened. Lord, would you expand peace? Would you re- not just, you know, we're not just saying in, you know, a thousand years from now, we're in the millennial kingdom. Like, would you bring peace now? We know there's prophecies about war that's coming. We get it. Right. But you tell us, you command us to pray for peace. So that must mean you intend to bring it. You're not here to thwart all of our prayers. This is a prayer that you told us to pray. So I believe what we're watching is transformative, but at the heart of it, it's prophetic. It is the power of prayer. God is moving for a season. We know that season will come to an end and there will be prophetic wars. There'll be other wars too, but prophetic wars that some of which will be cataclysmic and some of which will bring about ultimately the end of the world as we know it. So we know those are coming, but we're supposed to pray for peace. So that's what we're doing and that's what we're seeing. And the question for me is, okay, if this is what's happening right now, I want to understand it, and I want to help Christians understand it, both from a spiritual side. Okay, well, what does that mean now? If the Saudis are becoming warmer, not perfect, not they're not a Christian country, but if they want to move in the right direction, how can we pray now, not just for peace between Israel and the Saudis, we still need to do that, but how can we pray for the first church ever 
to be planted in Saudi Arabia and then the next one and the next one. I want to be part of that. How can we strengthen the 1.4 million Christians who live in Saudi Arabia and cannot worship in a church? How can we bring financial investments not only to Saudi Arabia but to the countries that have made peace and normalized with Israel like in part of the Abraham Accords like, and build Israeli, American, Christian, Arab cooperation – Again, people say, well, now you're, now you're taking the spiritual and you're turning it into making money. Well, let's go to Matthew 25. God is saying he's entrusted certain people with resources, some a little bit, some more, and some a lot. And the question is, are, how are we investing those resources? For those of us who have very few resources, the question is, we think of it spiritually. How can we make a spiritual impact? Good. Yeah. But some people have actual wealth, and the question is, well, what are we supposed to do to invest, to create jobs, to strengthen these cooperations and build an alliance against crazy people like the mm. leaders of Iran, so yeah. evil people? So yeah. I think at all levels, I'm intrigued with all of it. The Joshua Fund plays an element in this. Yes. But I have to be a good steward, it seems to me, of what I'm getting to see and yeah. what I'm getting to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm getting access to information that most people in the world, much less most evangelicals, they just don't have that. So yeah. my job is to say, okay, Lord, you've done this, not so I can like be on the front page of newspapers, but so I can help in both directions. Yes. Help the Saudis understand who Christians are, mm-hmm. help Christians understand who the Saudis and others are, and say, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you, Mr. Christian business leader, Mrs. Yeah. CEO, or pastor, or ministry leader, or whatever? Yeah. What part might God be having you to play in the transformative moment yeah. in the history of the Middle East. Yeah, well, Joel, it's been fascinating hearing this from you. And to remember that, you know, when when we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem and pray for the peace of Israel, we, we shouldn't separate it from praying for peace for the whole region and praying for the progress of the gospel in places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and all of these places that have been hostile to the message of the good news. And, and, and you know, just it's such a pleasure to have you uh, give us the insight. Take us inside this very unique place, the quote-unquote forbidden kingdom of Islam of Saudi Arabia. Thanks, Joel, for this time. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Well, and, and thanks to all of our listeners for listening to what I consider to be one of our most fascinating episodes. If you've found this podcast really valuable, please get in touch with us. Uh, let us know who you are. Do you want to talk about Something else on the show? Is there something about the the work of the Joshua Fund or the ministry that uh, exposure that Joel is having around the region that you are interested in? Let us know that. You have a question that you want Joel to answer. You can go to joshuafund.com and click on contact us. Your feedback is incredibly valuable as we develop this podcast. And as always, as we've said before, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on this podcast you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry Team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. 
That's lifeaudio.com.